I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. It's gotten now to the point where um, in the financial services world, who isn't getting on this bandwagon? That's Dave Chen, principal and chairman of Equilibrium Capital. Dave's a regular contributor to our Institutional Shift series of conversations. Today on the show, Impact Alpha's David Bank chats with Dave about the big private equity players getting into impact investing. Let's jump right into their conversation. Hi, I'm here again with Dave Chen from Equilibrium Capital, who's become kind of our institutional shift expert. I guess expert is fair, don't you think, Dave? I I always wanted to be a talking head on Dave News. You're a pundit of this institutional shift. And I will say, we had a great conversation back in January. We put out a podcast, Things to Look Out For in 2019. And it's kind of been like the table of contents for the year. We've just been ticking down some of the events that we... That, frankly, you called back in January. Well, thanks. I, I the, the one that that, that I think uh, a lot of people when I uh, when we when we had this conversation uh, in January uh, that may have been a little puzzled by was when I made the forecast that we were going to see you know everybody and their brother enter into the sustainable infrastructure fund management area and launch a whole bunch of products and that companies or fund managers like Aries were going to do it. I don't think people really realized you know sort of the significance or the inside, in, in many ways, the inside significance or the inside joke about that, given the fact that, you know, Eric has historically been a distressed debt provider, you know, it's $160 billion size, but that they're primarily a distressed debt provider. And, and here they were entering in with a sustainable infrastructure fund to go save the planet. It's better than that. We, you mentioned Aries and Blackstone and in the space of about a week, a couple of weeks ago, they both, uh, news broke at least, that they both were building out infrastructure funds. Blackstone actually hired um, ahead of that and, and made a more formal announcement. Aries kind of leaked out, I think, because they were uh, uh, pitching to investors. Yeah. And just, just tell us what, what, what infrastructure funds, there's, there's a phrase going around um, of social infrastructure, which I think even makes it bigger than, than just sewers and, and pipelines, right? Yeah, I, I think historically, uh, infrastructure would include some of the things that, in fact, our firm does, you know, waste to energy, waste to water, water treatment facilities, uh, 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 that whole genre of taking waste streams and, and converting them into things of value. Uh, or wind and solar. Uh, now, when you conclude social infrastructure, uh, that includes things like hospitals. It includes things like senior housing. Uh, it includes things that are associated potentially in uh, university settings. And so it, it starts to broadly define, uh, uh, and, and maybe some people would say that it's maybe too broad, but you start to define categories of infrastructure, real estate, uh, Etc. That that are now serving a community or targeted community purpose. I always like to use the journalistic dodge, which is you know explain it to me so I can explain it to the readers. But what is the difference between a private equity fund, as we've seen with the TPG Rise Fund, or what KKR is raising for their Global Impact Fund, and an infrastructure fund? Infrastructure uh, started with the idea that basic uh, social infrastructure like roads, telecommunications, water, sewage, uh, were all things that up until the time infrastructure funds started were really thought of as purely uh, community good and governmental uh, assets. And as we started to, to see that those assets either 
had value by themselves because they had uh, income streams or whether municipalities saw the opportunity to uh, sell them off uh, and take them off the public balance sheet and into the private sector, both to free capital, but also to allow for future investments in those areas, you started to see that that whole area of, quote unquote, public-private partnership and, and infrastructure uh, funds started to, to grow, to buy things as diverse as airports, ports, tollways, bridges, things like that. Is this privatization of public goods? It oftentimes is associated with that. And oftentimes it's associated with the expansion and the future investment in those kinds of things. And the other distinction is that an infrastructure fund, as you said, has a steady cash flow. Um, it's not, you know, we're not looking for like tech unicorns. This is not venture capital. This is this is like um, single digit steady returns, right? Correct. Correct. I, I think it, it bears highlighting, though, that when impact investing sort of came onto the scene, I'd say 10 years ago. The conversation around impact investing really centered on uh, social venture capital and on microfinance. And largely these areas of infrastructure were not included in the impact investing dialogue. And we had always felt that in many ways, the infrastructure kinds of investment opportunities, such as water, energy, uh, in fact, are some of the most highly impactful in that they directly went towards societal needs, societal good, as well as environmental. You know, I, I look back at one of the most important bond issuances uh, that set the tone for muni bonds was some of the work that took place at District of Columbia's uh, waterworks under George Hawkins, and then up in Massachusetts where they used it for green infrastructure. And these, these were six, seven years ago and really set and reset people's understanding while these things substantively make a difference to large-scale communities and they substantively make a, a positive, sustainable impact on the environment. And, and I think that it's incredibly positive that infrastructure is now thought of as part of the impact picture. But I was going to ask you, like, how do we know the difference between, uh, you know, an infrastructure fund and a sustainable infrastructure fund? Like, you know, is every hospital, every school, is that, you know, that's obviously, you know, a social infrastructure, but is that, you know, is are, are people just packaging things up as, as sustainable now? Maybe. That's your answer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, I mean, I, I, are, are, are Black, the Blackstones in the areas of the world doing this because their investors are demanding it? And if so, why are their investors demanding it? Maybe. <laughs> Is there operational efficiencies, cost savings, and other kinds of actual material benefits out of all this? I... I uh... I asked the CEO of one of the largest pools of capital, they're, they're, a, they're an asset manager. Um, why, and, I, and this was a conversation two years ago, I asked, I asked him, why are you building an ESG group within your firm? And uh, why, uh, you know, why are you doing this? And why are you putting it on your homepage? And he said, the simplest possible answer, which was my clients are demanding it. Uh, we're not necessarily doing this for religious reasons. 
Uh, we're doing this because our clients want it, and our job is to serve our clients and to do it in a you know in a sincere way. And and I thought that that was a very honest answer. We had a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago um, from Alliance Bernstein, and he mentioned that he had been. Uh, sort of, you know, ra- raising the alarm for many years and getting nowhere inside the firm until one major client actually pulled out because they didn't have a impact or sustainable investing uh, platform. And so then they came to him and said, yeah, you've been talking about this. What, you know, uh, why don't you do something? Yeah, if I, if I step back and, and, and sort of revisit our conversation in, in January and took a pulse here in, you know, we're now at the half of the year, I, I would say looking forward, um, a couple of things that come to mind that, that, that I would quote unquote put in the forecast or in the, the macro trend observation. N- number one, it's gotten now to the point where um, in the financial services world, who isn't getting on this bandwagon? Uh, I was talking yesterday to uh, a senior person at, at SASB and the proactive uh, sort of voluntary uh, desire to be part of the SASB advisory board is now basically every single major uh, investment platform firm. Just to be clear for the listeners, SASB is the Sustainable Accounting Standards Boards, and they've been trying to to develop a set of of material, as as we've been saying, material um, uh, factors that uh, uh, specific to each industry that that need to be accounted for for this in the sustainability uh, question that we raised earlier. And, and the subtlety I would add is that SASB is not intending to be a impact metric. What they are trying to do is link. Uh, sustainability metrics to financial uh, performance and health of company. And, and that's a very different purpose. And it's one that, that, that I think is actually going to gain a lot of traction. The, the, the second observation, so everybody's getting in on it. The second observation is I think that we're starting to see the next wave of uh, market segmentation. That is firms that are doing it for precisely uh, uh, the reason I articulated, which was because clients demand it. And then a very, very small set of these new firms that are starting to understand and they will not use the impact word. They will not use the impact word, but they're starting to ask the question. How can we use uh, the capital markets now and these large asset bases that we control to actually influence the marketplace and to influence it from a sustainability standpoint? And how can we influence it in terms of the directionality and the trajectory of sustainability macro trends? In other words, if low carbon is really not only the right thing for the planet, but low carbon is, uh, is a trend and it's happening in business, how can we uh, play a proactive role encouraging that trajectory and profit from that? Why wouldn't they use the impact word? Um, impact is still associated with a whole set of, of attributes. And, and, uh, and I think that the, you know, I teach this in the class, you know, there's a, there's a number of subtleties here. One is that many of these large scale platforms will ask about the impact word but, but they're going to be more focused on, in our minds, on the risk management exposure of uh, uh, the various sustainability, climate, uh, demographic issues, but also the opportunity set that, that's available for them. So impact still means concessionary or, or below market returns in, in that context. And so they, they want to just say, these are material, these are opportunities, this is risk reduction, yep. this, is, this is real business, not, not ideology. Absolutely. And, and 
it's interesting. It's, it's, it's funny that when it rains, it pours. Uh, in the last two weeks, I think I've talked to the senior partner of at least four firms, one of which was a, a major RIA, and three of them were, you know, arguably private equity-like competitors of ours that called up and said, hey, friend of mine said that you're the go-to person to talk to about this. And and the questions are all the same, which is, you know, it, it, what's the impact? Am I greenwashing if I fundamentally believe that what we've been doing is impactful? If I segment the market, are there all these investors that want to put money into impact? You know, but but they're coming out of the woodwork and, and they're asking it in very sincere ways. And I, I would say that I, I could almost predict that if I had these conversations three, four years ago, um, at least one of the people on the other end of that conference call would have been rolling their eyes. I don't think I had uh, any many eye rolls uh, uh, the last couple of weeks. I think people are taking this extremely seriously. Well, one of the ways we, we talked about in January was um, how the sustainability, the operationalization of sustainability was actually, as you said, driving, you know, cost, cost savings or, yeah. or, or securing supply chains, what have you. Um, there's been a rash of, of, of what are called sustainability linked loans, where the cost of capital actually reduced by the banks who think that if you're improving your, um, your, your sustainability performance, that you're a better, a better bet. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this in January, and you know, a couple of the the, the examples that we highlighted were Danone, and, and I can't remember if that was one or two billion euro, and uh, and Philip uh, Electronics, uh, and, and and again, they were in that one to two billion euro uh, size. Uh, we're going to see more of that, and uh, and we're going to see it from I think legitimate plate legitimate use of it for sustainability purposes, but we're going to see it from unconventional places. See the, the, the borrowers or the lenders? Uh, both, both the borrowers and the lenders. All right. You know, as you know, we issued out in November, a green bond, uh, a green muni bond on one of our uh, assets in Yuma, Arizona. Well, there's a huge appetite for that. In fact, uh, we worked with Goldman Sachs on that, and Goldman's reporting back to us that that the market is is actually very hungry for those assets, which is why I made the call in 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 January that that I fundamentally believe that 2020 is going to be the year of climate change investing, and and it's not that we haven't been doing parts of that, but 2020 you're going to see banner headlines around this and. You know, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if uh, if uh, the uh, the Times Square uh, banners that 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 some of the the financial institutions have out there uh, the, the aren't going to be blaring. You know, invest in climate change. You know, this ETF and that ETF and that product line. Um, take a hunk out of you know, save the glacier. You know, it, 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 I think we're going to hit this in a big way in in 2020, and I think. The other one that I that I that I'll stand by is 2020. We're going to see announcement after announcement from capital markets about something to do with plastic, something to do with the recycling of of, of specifically plastics and the uses of plastics and the reduction of plastics and and hopefully we'll see some uh, innovative financial instruments that 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 incentivize the counter use of of plastics. But but I think 2020 we're going to just see uh, a whole host of announcements around that. Interesting. Well, on, on climate change, there is there is a, a set of things that, that caught my attention, which is 
and we said it back then that climate risk hadn't yet been priced into uh-huh. the market. And there's been a set of reports that that tried to quantify that. And what was interesting to me was that they basically said when it does get priced in, it's going to come all of a sudden, not necessarily gradually, or maybe gradually and then all of a sudden, and that there'll be a climate shock in a sense. And I think the Bank of England just last week uh, said something that to that same effect, that even though, you know, it's in, you know, it's it's on everybody's minds now, it's still not priced in. How can that possibly be? I'd make the argument that it's already being priced in. Um, it's interesting. One of our good friends uh, that came out of the hedge fund industry made a tremendous amount of personal wealth in that, retired at a young age, took a walk about about seven years ago to try to learn about how he could use his skills and, and the impact word and everything like that. And, you know, for a guy of his background, he was incredibly humble. And, uh, and I think part of it was because he came from such humble backgrounds. He, he decided a few years ago to go back into the industry and try to use his impact insights in the uh, energy uh, area. And, uh, and he just, he, he raised, he raised a fair amount of money from his old clients and he just, uh, announced to me, didn't announce, he just told me that, that he was shutting it down. And, 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 and it was interesting what he said. He said that, um, the way that he made money and energy and the rules of engagement for how to, how to look at the energy industry, he felt had fundamentally changed. And that in fact, the market was already pricing in in his mind, uh, a set of assumptions about the fact that these were sunset industries and that, that, that the rules had changed and uh, the way that he was successful had changed and that he needed to be understanding and taking a step back and looking at the rules of engagement as the low carbon economy uh, is now the place where people are in fact putting their growth assumptions and treating many of the carbon industries as sunset industries. So in some ways, I think the smart money is already starting to play that out. I also think that one of the things that you said that I wanted to touch on, which I think is another trend, uh, and, and these are all about the fact that the world is the world in terms of financial services, I think, is radically shifting. And unless you're in it every day, I don't think you get to see it. You use the word operationalization of, of sustainability, and I, and I would say that it's the operationalization of sustainability as a core investment strategy and as a core value metric. And, and, and I'll tell you what's happening. If you look at many of the, of the financial services firms that uh, opened up uh, ESG programs five years ago and look at the staffing Many of the staffing that, that they that they people that they had that they, they brought in to run those groups either came from an NGO or a foundation background uh, or a policy rich background, and and I think it reflected their thinking of where the center of the conversation would be, where the center of the value would be, and if you look at it, almost every firm is now reconstituting those groups and bringing in a, uh, a, a seasoned mainstream investment experience individual that also has a distinct interest in this area. And so that the kind of profile of individuals that they're having staff these functions has fundamentally shifted. We have a saying at Impact Alpha, you know, everybody knows follow the money. We also say follow the talent. Yes. 
that if you get smart people, you know, with their own career ambitions and their own their own their own goals, you know, they don't want to just sit there and collect a paycheck. They want to make stuff happen. And so if you get all the smart people trying to make stuff happen, probably stuff will start to happen. And I think we're getting ready to see the next wave of human capital uh, going into this this sector. And I think the characteristics that they have are, are different. We also run the risk that folks that that have no um, mission heart uh, may be entering this because they see it as a wonderful opportunity to make some money. Well, you mentioned Sunset Industries, and then you also mentioned mainstream. We've tried to get away from using mainstream and I, I, I might adopt Sunset, but we've we've called it legacy, like legacy finance, like legacy technology is the installed technology that you got to deal with in some way, but it doesn't really have any future, and you really want to jump to the new thing. So maybe legacy finance is is sunsetting, and uh, what what what's the new thing? Sustainable finance? Yeah, I think so. I really do. Um, I, I think a couple things that that bear watching, and uh, and and you. At Impact Alpha have a unique purview because you cover so much of the pioneering uh, firms and fund managers and uh, asset owners that founded, quote unquote, the impact sector. And you've got a firm uh, uh, foot in the sustainable finance and what's happening with uh, the, uh, as you call it, the legacy uh, investment firms. I think we're we're going to start to see, uh, uh, and, and I'll use an old book, the crossing the chasm uh, example again. We're going to see that happening uh, in the next twelve months. Uh, organizations like uh, Gin, uh, in some ways uh, B Corp, that that really were pioneers in growing this industry, are going to be going through a process of wrestling through as new players and players with very different starting points. Uh, backgrounds, agendas, and objectives uh, that are foreign names. They're not certainly not foreign names from an awareness standpoint, but foreign names of this conversation are entering, and, and I think fundamentally entering in a, uh, a sincere way. This isn't just greenwashing. You've always had this, this point, which I think is well taken and, and, and maybe um, might rub some people the wrong way, but I think is, is worth listening to, which is that all of these trends that the impact pioneers, as you say, have been calling for many years may come true, but those pioneers may not may not be the beneficiaries of that. They may get washed away, but as you say, as the bigger players come in. And, and I don't think it's just being washed away. I think they're coming from a different place. And, and so it isn't that they go away, but they continue to serve a different place. And this is in some ways the classic markets segmentation issue that takes place. And that's why I'm such a fan of crossing the chasm as a way of thinking about market evolution and the companies or institutions that serve the different market segments as they go through an evolutionary process of the market. And, and so they were winners of that segment when the segment was the one that mattered. And that segment may have tapped out, but they may still be there uh, associated with that. One of the things that seems to be a recurring theme that I've just maybe been fixated on this this year has been risk and sort of the changing perceptions of risk. One of the ones you called out in back in January was was workforce and affordable housing, yep. um, and uh, it was news to me then. And then now it almost seems to be conventional wisdom that that that's actually the most stable class in real estate. And, and in some sense, uh, uh, much more of an institutional kind of investment than luxury or high-end housing. 
Absolutely. And, and, and you see the firms that are announcing funds in this area. They, 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 the, the companies like Brookfield, they just announced a billion-dollar uh, low-income uh, affordable housing fund. This is no longer has to be synonymous necessarily with quote-unquote slumlord or local player. And it's an unfortunate aspect of our society. We, uh, there was a, the Fed Reserve Bank just published uh, their demographic report. And, uh, and it's, you know, directionally, it's going the wrong way. Uh, the amount of wealth that is uh, uh, in the bottom half of the country isn't growing and it, it's declining. Uh, I, I'd be willing to guess that if you looked at the average household income, uh, which combines the uh, two wage earners in a family, so to speak, uh, I'd be willing to bet that, that, that uh, that's on a, on a steady, flat or slight decline. And so, so these trends are not good trends, and, and therefore it points to the fact that affordable and workforce housing and low-income housing, which are all three very different categorizations, are all going to be, in fact, growth segments. And stability is defined by the fact that you have tenants that, that are waiting in line to get into those kinds of, of, of housing uh, forms. Well, okay, so let's bring this to a close with the big, the big question, which is, you know, everybody's doing sustainable investing, but the world is, is the world is still going to hell. That we had a we had a podcast uh, with that title of, uh, not not too long ago. Like, does any of this make a, a real difference in the real world? Uh, you can't I, I, say I, maybe. No, I, I won't. I I, I I have a note of of, of warning, and I, I I think I have a note of optimism, and that is that. The, the note of warning is that when people are entering into a field, oftentimes they don't have the opportunity, don't take the opportunity to study the mistakes of the past. And so oftentimes very simplistic ways of approaching these issues of sustainability are, are going to be repeated. You know, I, I like to say that it isn't as if these problems of the world were discovered yesterday. You know, some of the smartest people have been hacking at this for, for decades. And so... So it isn't like the world was waiting for you to arrive with your brilliance. So I think we will see a number of mistakes made and repeated. On the other hand, the optimism that I have is that human beings uh, like to solve problems. Uh, again, sometimes they solve them very poorly and very, very well. And my optimism is that now that we're starting to understand that the markets can be used in some cases to address these quote unquote planetary issues, that I think we're going to see the next wave of innovation, hopefully the same kind of innovations uh, from a financial instrument standpoint that unlocked the renewable energy revolution of the last 15 years. Uh, it, it just gives me great optimism that the firms that are, that, that are now household names out there are now starting to pay serious attention to it. So yeah, 90% of the firms may be doing it because their clients want it, but there'll be 10% that see that there's a tremendous opportunity to influence the curve and to apply uh, financial innovation to uh, shifting the curve. And when that gets uh, uh, understood more broadly, then whole markets shift rather fast, no? Yeah, I mean, if you really look at it in the last 15 years, I, I'd estimate that at least just in the US, we shifted about $500 billion in the renewables energy area. And it's, it's not stopping, it's accelerating. And if you put that in a global perspective, I bet you the number is, you know, north of a trillion. And, uh, and that's, that's a 15-year trajectory. 
I think that that one of the things that this puts a huge premium on, and and it's one of the things that I think has stymied the uh, impact uh, uh, sector, impact investing sector, is that they allowed themselves to stay at the I call it strategy conversation. And one of the things that that I, I'm watching these firms that are entering now is the conversation has relatively little to do with strategy and everything to do with what are the products that can be created, launched, and deployed that match to these sustainability objectives. So the, 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 the center of gravity right now is on product development and financial services product development. I want listeners to, to take note of that because that's been something that folks inside the industry have talked about a lot is where are the products? And it sounds like you're saying they're, they're coming and they're, and they're going to be impactful. The, the premium is going to be on folks that can develop new products. Uh, the days of the white paper are long gone. Well, thank you, Dave Chen. We're going to check in again in a little bit and, um, and see how this all played out uh, in the next few months. And uh, we'll see whether, whether your uh, crystal ball um, is, is as good as it has been. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thanks to Dave Chen and David Bank for that great conversation. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact at the fintech company LiquidNet. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you, in some sense of the word, next time.